You're listening to the podcast of ASN Kidney News, the news magazine of the nephrology community. ASN Kidney News is a publication of the American Society of Nephrology, the world's largest professional society devoted to leading the fight against kidney disease. In this podcast, William M. Bennett, MD, Editor-in-Chief of the Clinical Journal of the American Society of Nephrology, the resource for breaking clinical nephrology studies, also known as CJSON, speaks with Richard J. Classic, MD, on the topic of estimated glomerular filtration rate, also known as EGFR. This laboratory value is now reported by all laboratories every time a serum creatinine is ordered. It is my great pleasure to introduce today's discussant, Dr. Richard Glassick from Los Angeles, California and the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Dr. Glassick is well known to all nephrologists because of his uh, extensive career. He has uh, been the past president of the American Society of Nephrology been president of the National Kidney Foundation, and he was the first editor of the Nephrology Self-Assessment Program, which has been such a success as published by the American Society of Nephrology. So welcome, Dick, and we're glad to have you today. Thanks, Bill, for that very nice introduction. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Okay. The uh, first question I'd like to ask you, Dick, is Does the estimated GFR measurement based on the MDRD equation, as now practiced widely around the United States, achieve its goal of increasing awareness of chronic kidney disease, and is that a good thing? Well, Bill, I think this is a a very important question to ask, and I would answer it initially in the affirmative, that the introduction of the concepts of estimating GFR by equations such as the uh, modification in diet and renal disease and its linkage to the uh, KDOKI-CKD classification schema, both of which occurred, as you know, between 1999 and 2002, has resulted in a rather dramatic increase, I- increase in the awareness of chronic kidney disease, both in the general public and, equally importantly, in the general internists and family physicians. And if you look over medical journals and PubMed, as I have, this concept of ECEGFR and the associated events of classifying CKD have really had a huge impact on increasing basic and clinical research in this area. I think another phenomenon has contributed to this, and that is the fact that many hospitals and clinical laboratories now routinely report values for estimated GFR using the MDRD formula every time a serum creatinine is measured. Certainly, this has brought to the attention of many physicians the concept of estimating GFR and its relationship to CKD. Now, I wish I could say that this increased awareness has all been good. Awareness, or at least being better informed, is always a two-edged sword, and certainly Being more aware of a renal disease that has an impact on the quality or duration of life, especially, especially one that can be prevented or treated, is one thing. On the other hand, increasing awareness of what I've called a pseudo-disease, that is something created by an arbitrary definition and completely dependent on a single biochemical test of rather dubious precision, Uh, is quite another thing entirely, and uh, I'm not quite sure 
that the introduction of the EGFR concept and its wide application, as you've already pointed out, particularly concerning the diagnosis of possible CKD, has turned out to be cost-beneficial. As you know, uh, Bill, and as most every nephrologist practicing today knows, it has increased referrals to nephrologists. And perhaps later on in this discussion, we can discuss some aspects of the rising prevalence of the so-called EGFR consult. Unfortunately, the use of EGFR as an estimate of or as a way to diagnose chronic kidney disease, due to its numerous false positives, has generated a lot of unnecessary investigations and office visits and, you know, I think equally importantly has raised the fear level in those unfortunate individuals who happen to have a false positive EGFR test. So, uh, on the latter point of your question, my personal view is that the energy spent in promoting this concept of EGFR might have been more productively used in increasing the awareness of other factors which clearly have importance in health, and that one, for example, might be elevated blood pressure and its treatment. Thank you, Dick. That's a very comprehensive answer. Could I ask you a little corollary? Assuming that it is a good thing to know what your GFR or estimated GFR is, what amount of false positives do you think are caused by variability in the uh, determination of the creatinine from laboratory to laboratory? And if we're going to do this type of screening, should that be standardized? Well, unquestionably in the past, there's been a lot of variation from lab to lab due to the uh, lack of a universal standard for creatinine based on mass spectrometry, a so-called gold standard. This is, I think, on the way to being corrected because there is a nationwide and even an international effort to be sure that all clinical laboratories throughout the world that report serum creatinine reference it to a single mass-based standard. That is not the case currently. Right. Uh, and uh, because of this variation in uh, serum creatinine and the lack of standardization, the application of a formula like the MDRD, which was derived from a single laboratory, uh, can generate its own uh, variation in the result. Of course, there's also a problem of the precision of the equation itself in that uh, there is a fairly wide standard deviation about the mean when you calculate estimated GFR from a single uh, serum creatinine measurement. My next question is, can any creatinine-based formula replace an actual GFR measurement for the assessment of renal function? And if not, how should we use actual GFR measurements in clinical practice? Well, another great question, Bill. And the answers to it really depend to a very large extent on how one plans to use the result. And as I've recently written in an editorial for Kidney International, published this last March, there are at least eight uh, separate enumerated purposes for uh, estimating GFR. Now, if you attempt to estimate true GFR, let's say uh, an inulin clearance is a gold standard for the true GFR, using any of the currently available creatinine-based methods, 
you will get an inherently imprecise result. Uh, that also has a variable degree of bias. That means it can either overestimate or underestimate true GFR, depending on the circumstances. Uh, so uh, one has to realize and understand the pitfalls, the potential sources of errors for estimated GFR when you're, when you're attempting to decide whether or not an estimate is useful in your particular situation. Now, let me give you an example, which I'm sure you have become, which you're very familiar with and probably encounter nearly every day. Uh, I don't think it's possible to use the EGFR-MDRD equation uh, for qualifying living donors for transplantation uh, because it's uh, clearly not precise enough, uh, and I think under these circumstances it's probably advisable to attempt to measure the true GFR, such as by the use of a urinary iothalamate clearance, which can be relatively easily done, and radioactive forms of iothalamate clearances or non-radioactive iothalamate clearances are available at many medical centers, but of course they're not widely available as a clinical laboratory test because they require in the case of the isotope, a license to administer it, and it takes you know several hours to perform the test. But if, if you need to have a precise measurement of GFR, it's better to actually do the test. Now, on the other hand, estimation of GFR, for example, with the MDRD calculation, may be a very satisfactory way of assessing the severity of established chronic kidney disease. However, the use of an EGFR measurement as a single test to diagnose a patient with CKD or to screen a large population for the presence of CKD in otherwise healthy subjects is severely limited by the difficulties in precision and bias that one encounters in the EGFR equations. A problem area that has not really been solved, in my opinion, is whether the EGFR has value in calculating drug dosages to avoid, for example, unwanted side effects or to optimize efficacy. In principle, it would seem to be better than a serum creatinine measurement, but unfortunately, there have been no prospective randomized studies to unequivocally prove that utilization of EGFR is any better equivalent or worse than using a serum creatinine measurement in uh, drug dosing. We know, I think, and there have been numerous studies of this, that the EGFR values that are derived from almost any of the current equations, when directly compared to a measured GFR, such as an inulin or alphalamate clearance, has inherent imprecision. Uh, in fact, I think in the studies of Frassart, which was, I think, one of the earliest comparison studies uh, from France, an EGFR calculated by the MDRD method of 60 mLs per minute per 1.73 meters squared, which is the way most values are standardized, could translate to a measured GFR, that is an inulin clearance or an iothalamate clearance, of between 35 and 90 mLs per minute per 1.73 meters squared for the 95% confidence limits. So I think whether EGFR calculations are useful depends on to what use they're going to be put to. Transplantation qualification, I think they don't have much value. 
one should measure the true GFR as best one can approach it, whereas in other circumstances they might be perfectly useful. Speaking of classifications of CKD, because that is currently the vogue in terms of quantitating how bad CKD is if you have CKD, is any classification valid that does not include other things that a nephrologist might ascertain, such as proteinuria or abnormalities such as hematuria? Uh, can you classify kidney disease ignoring those urinary abnormalities in the sediment? Well, Bill, I don't think that classifications of CKD, if they're used for diagnosis and stratification of severity, that completely ignore evidence of renal damage other than changes in GFR are going to prove to be inadequate. Now, in the original KDOKI classification scheme, which was, as you know, published now what, about seven years ago, right. uh, stage one and stage two did require evidence of some renal damage, such as proteinuria or hematuria, for example. Uh, and I think today there's very broad agreement that any individual who has persistent EGFR values of less than 30 mLs per minute for 1.73 meters squared, that is stages four and five of the KDOKI 2002 schema, is extremely likely to have CKD even if they have no uh, evidence of proteinuria or hematuria. So the real issue uh, that you raise relates specifically and puts on center stage stage three CKD, which of course is diagnosed only by the presence of an EGFR value between 30 and 59 mLs per minute and does not require any confirmatory evidence of renal damage. Now, this happens also to be the commonest form of CKD, accounting for, in population studies, about 60 to 70 percent of all cases. So it's a very important component of the universe of CKD. Now, when you look at the data, proteinuria is commonly absent in stage 3 CKD. And when you look at the patients who have stage 3 CKD who don't have proteinuria, they very infrequently progress to end-stage disease or have any cardiovascular complications. Because of this, I think, you know, some people have introduced revisions to the KDOKI schema, particularly for stage 3, and, and as you know, many others are currently under consideration. Let me just give you one example, Bill. Not applicable to the United States because it was originated in the United Kingdom under the uh, aegis of the National Institute Centers for Excellence, called NICE. Uh, and this system, which is in, I think, general use in the UK now, divides stage 3 into four subparts. Stage 3A, which is an EGFR between 45 and 59 mLs per minute for 1.73, and stage 3B, 30 to 44 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared, and then adds a suffix, either P positive or P negative, delineating the presence or absence of proteinuria. So you can have stage 3A, P negative, stage 3A, P positive, and so forth. This NICE schema has shown that patients with stage 3A who are P 
negative, that is the upper strata of EGFR without proteinuria, probably have no increased risk of end-stage renal failure or CVD, and they're commonly elderly women. These patients, although they may be diagnosed as having CKD, for all intents and purposes have nothing that's going to influence their life expectancy or their morbidity. In my way of thinking, it's hard to call them diseased. Some have suggested that you can overcome these difficulties by including age and gender-adjusted percentiles of GFR to account for the effects of normal aging. And in some countries, it's been necessary to make further adjustments for ethnicity. For example, the USA determined CKD MDRD EGFR formula, if you will, cannot be successfully exported to Japan or China without some additional modifications in the variables used to calculate EGFR. That's quite interesting and sort of brings us back to the reality of uh, lots of nephrologists are getting uh, asked to see patients because a primary care physician gets a notation on his laboratory slips for routine chemistries that the EGFR suggests that there is stage 3 chronic kidney disease. If you were sitting in your office as a consultant, Dick, how would you approach a patient with an EGFR consult who said to you, just because this laboratory abnormality is abnormal? Yeah, a crucial question of rapidly growing importance. And uh, this uh, phenomenon of the EGFR consult, which I alluded to briefly earlier, hmm. I think is being driven to a very large extent by the practice of routinely reporting a value for EGFR every time a serum creatinine is measured in a clinical laboratory, which is uh, has the force of law behind it in four states in the United States and in, and in the entire United Kingdom. This practice of uh, routine or mandatory reporting of EGFR has been decried by many, including myself, as completely inappropriate, wasteful of resources, and possibly dangerous. And it's giving rise to this phenomenon, the EGFR consult. Unfortunately, these EGFR values that are being reported are not accompanied by standard deviations of the error, standard deviations of the mean value, mm -hmm. And they're not accompanied by normal age and gender adjusted values for reference. And since Kadoki in 2002 arbitrarily defined CKD as an EGFR of less than 60 mLs per minute per 1.73 meters squared, as we've just discussed, even in the absence of any signs of renal damage, this uh, EGFR consult, as you've called it, is often generated when a report of the EGFR less than 60 mLs per minute per 1.73 appears in a laboratory report, even when the serum creatinine was measured not on the basis of a suspicion of renal disease, but just a part of a routine biochemical testing of an apparently healthy patient. Now, I think you asked me as to what my reaction would be as a nephrologist, having been asked by a family physician or a general internist to see such a patient with an EGFR consult. Yes. I ask myself and the patient and the referring physician uh, seven crucial questions. One, what is the patient's age and gender? 
so that I can adjust the value to what is expected for normal aging. Second, I ask if the patient is in a steady state. You cannot use the EGFR-MDRD formula if the patient has acute renal failure and a rapidly changing GFR. Third, if available, it's always nice to do a retrospective comparison to see what the serum creatinine and EGFR measurements have been in the past. This is often missing, but if it's available, it can be important. Fourth, I always determine, and this is often done personally rather than by the referring physician, whether the urine contains an abnormal quantity of protein, blood, or formed elements. This means doing a dipstick and a urinary sediment examination because the results of these tests will certainly determine the importance of the EGFR value. Next, and this is often, I think, neglected, is what's the patient's nutritional state and customary diet? Vegetarians who do not eat red-cooked meat tend to have a lower serum creatinine and therefore a higher EGFR. And a patient with an EGFR of 50 who's a vegetarian, I think one must take their customary diet into account in interpreting the findings. In addition, under certain circumstances, you want to know whether any substances were present in serum that might have interfered with the measurement of serum creatinine. And here, you really have to know what the assay method is in the lab. Plasma glucose of 700 milligrams per deciliter will artifactually elevate the serum creatinine as measured by the Jaffe method, but it won't elevate it if they use the enzymatic method. Last, I suppose, like any lab test, you have to know whether there's any drugs that the patient are taking that might influence the renal handling of creatinine. Now, the answers to these questions will often give the physician receiving the referral guidance as to the need for further investigation and will also determine, in my opinion, Bill, whether there is the need for a more accurate measurement of GFR, such as an iothalamate clearance or a 24-hour creatinine clearance. Before I finish discussing this, I want to point out a fascinating editorial which was published just a few days ago in Kidney International, written by an intern at the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York, which I think epitomizes the dilemma of the EGFR consult, at least in hospitalized patients. The editorial is kind of entitled in a tongue-in-cheek fashion, to EGFR or not to EGFR, here is the intern's answer. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Friedberg, the intern in question, describes in his brief editorial, a 68-year-old woman with urosepsis and a liver transplant in the ICU who was found to have a serum creatinine of 1.8 milligrams per deciliter. And the laboratory provided him with a calculated EGFR of 30 mLs per minute, and he went on and calculated an estimated creatinine clearance from the old-fashioned copcroft golf formula of 31 mLs per minute. The two values corresponded pretty well. But she was small, very frail, and very poorly nourished. He's quite unsure as to whether these values are true, and particularly whether she needs dialysis. And he points out that he's going to have to defend his action to his attending the next day. To clarify the situation, 
he very intelligently measures a 24-hour endogenous creatinine clearance, which gives a value of 14.6 mLs per minute. Because the urinary creatinine excretion rate was only 379 milligrams per day, less than 50% of the expected value for a woman of this age. And based on this, he decides to prepare the patient for dialysis. And I think this epitomizes some of the pitfalls of applying EGFR values to diagnosis without considering the circumstances under which the measurement was made. I read that editorial, too, and I had similar impressions, Dick. Back to your previous answer, your approach to the EGFR consult depends heavily on examining the urine. Do you think that primary care physicians, or nephrologists for that matter, receive enough training such that they'd be able to competently evaluate a urine sediment for the presence of active renal disease? When you and I were training as uh, young fellows, it was considered a part of our daily practice to examine the urine of a patient we were seeing personally. Since the laboratory rules have changed and it's not permissible to perform this in every circumstance and put the values you obtain in the chart, I think there has been a steady decline in the quality of training of fellows in examination of the urinary sediment. And there's too much reliance on dipstick values, which, as you know, have their inherent false positives and false negatives. And uh, there is no substitute, in my opinion, for a personal examination of a freshly voided urine processed for a proper examination of the urinary sediment. I obviously agree with that, which leads into the next question, which is you're the primary care physician now, and you see one of these relatively healthy people, probably elderly, with an EGFR less than 60 or stage 3 CKD. When should you, as the primary care physician, refer that patient to a nephrologist? And isn't it reasonable to have that physician or his or her surrogate perform a urine analysis, which seems to be one of the critical elements of your uh, approach to an EGFR consult? Well, Bill, let me think about that for a minute. It's certainly a common circumstance for a family physician, and having been on the receiving end of many requests for consultations, I think I have a fairly good appreciation of the the situation. Uh, In my opinion, if a patient is under the age of 65 uh, and has an EGFR of, say, between 30 and 59 mLs per minute by the MDRD method, which would be stage 3 CKD, according to K. Doki. I would refer the patient to a nephrologist if the urinalysis showed one plus or greater proteinuria, or if the urine sediment showed hematuria, leukocyturia, or abnormal CAS. So I think in this case, the urinalysis becomes a crucial bit of information. Now, in the absence of looking at a urine in such a patient, If either diabetes or hypertension is present, that would be, say, a blood pressure over 140, I think a referral is uh, appropriate. One might add to that, I guess, if the patient has a family history of renal disease because, of course, certain forms of cystic kidney disease, the urine sediment may be rather bland, the EGFR slightly reduced, uh, 
and uh, that sort of patient might easily be missed unless the family practitioner is in the practice of routinely doing an ultrasound in every patient who has an EGFR less than 60. Now, if the EGFR value is between 30 and 44 mLs per minute, that would be sort of the nice stage 3B, Mm -hmm. uh, I would refer the patient to a nephrologist at any age because the likelihood is they have some form of a CKD and they, uh, they need to be evaluated for proper management to prevent complications and to see whether or not their further progression can be retarded. Now, some family physicians may prefer to observe patients for a while to see whether or not there's a change uh, over time, and I suppose one can use the MDRD EGFR formula for following such patients if you recognize that there's a lot of variability in the assay and the resulting values obtained by the formula. But if over time EGFR is declining at a rate in excess of that which would be predicted from age alone, which is, you know, values probably in excess of 1 mL per minute per year or 10 mLs per decade, a referral to a nephrologist is probably appropriate regardless of the age. Now, I, I, Bill, I can't resist the temptation to stress the fact that an EGFR of over 60 mLs per minute, the values that are reported in the clinical laboratory reports, mm -hmm. that's not necessarily a sign of good renal health. And I think it's very incorrect to assume that if your EGFR is over 60 mLs per minute, you're home free. Uh, because right. if, if you've got an EGFR of 75 mLs per minute, for 1.73, for example, and you're 40 years old, you have an abnormal EGFR, and that deserves to be evaluated, uh, especially, of course, if the urinalysis is abnormal. So don't assume or family, uh, family practitioners and general internists should not be lulled into a sense of complacency if the EGFR is over 60, particularly if the patient is relatively young. The EGFR has done a lot of things. It, as you pointed out, has increased our awareness that there's a population of people out there that probably have unsuspected, more silent chronic kidney disease. But as you've also pointed out, it's had many unintended consequences, which need to be taken into consideration. Any other uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with? Well, I think the audience should stay tuned because uh, the entire EGFR CKD classification schema and constructs are going to be discussed at an international meeting to be held in London in October of 2009 with a publication of revisions, if they are recommended, sometime in 2010. So we may be uh, on the cusp of some uh, some changes in the approach to the use of EGFR and its application to diagnosis and classification of CKD. Stay tuned. I'd like to thank Dr. Glassick for uh, a very lucid discussion of the issues, and we thank him for joining us today on this ASN Kidney News podcast. ASN Kidney News is available for free in North America and is a publication of the American Society of Nephrology, the largest professional society devoted to leading the fight against kidney disease. ASN and its 11,000 members promote expert patient care and advanced medical education and research. 
To subscribe to Kidney News or learn more about the Society, visit ASN Online at asn-online.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.